Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! Hear these words from the book that we love. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me for a moment? Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. It has been argued that ambition, which you might define as an ardent desire for rank, fame, or power, that ambition is the driving force of William Shakespeare's famous tragedy, Macbeth. In Act One, at the end of a soliloquy in which Macbeth is contemplating murdering another character, he says this, last lines of this soliloquy. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. And what Macbeth is saying here is that he knows, he realizes in and of himself that he has no reasonable, justifiable reason to murder this man, Duncan, that he's talking about here. The only one, the only possible reason is his ambition, this ambition, this desire that he has to gain power. And it compels him and it overrules all of his logic. And throughout the play, Macbeth's ambition inspires most of his actions. And if you know the play well, or if you go read the play, you read the Sparknotes version, as I know many of us probably did in high school or college or whatever, you'll see that this ambition and his actions, it results in the death of numerous characters, and this ambition ultimately proves to be the downfall of both himself and Lady Macbeth. Ambition. Ambition uh, misdirected when it's, when it's unbridled, when it's unchecked, when it doesn't have a moral compass, it can easily spiral out of control. Like James says in the book of James, like, it's much like the tongue, 
which is powerful, and it's a difficult thing for us to tame. And like fire, ambition can be directed and used in many constructive and beneficial ways, but it can also just as easily cause unimaginable destruction, if not tended to and managed properly. In our passage this morning, we just read, we see that there is a mother and two sons who come to Jesus full of ambition. They want to be great. And they ask Jesus to help them fulfill this desire for greatness. I do think it's interesting here that Jesus, if you notice as we read the passage, that he doesn't condemn this urge, this, in, this desire that's within them. He doesn't, he doesn't explicitly say that that longing of their heart to be important or successful is wrong in and of itself, or that it's sinful in and of itself. Instead, in a way that only Jesus can do, and you see this in other parts of the gospel so beautifully, so masterfully, he gently and graciously redirects their ambition. In other words, he puts the ball back in their court in an unexpected way. In effect, what Jesus says to them when they come is he says, you want to be great? Awesome. Sure. You can be great. Here's the way to do that. Do it this way, and you will be great. And it's unexpected. And so from here, I want to talk in three parts about the teaching that we see here in these verses and about the implications of them for us. Three parts. First, the brother's worldly misconception. Second, Jesus's countercultural redefinition. And third, the Christian's chief motivation. So misconception, redefinition, and motivation. So first, let's look together here, the brother's worldly conception. These brothers, the sons of Zebedee, they had a fundamental misunderstanding of what was about to happen. They did not understand how Jesus's earthly mission was going to end, and they did not understand what it truly meant to follow Jesus. See, prior to this passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been explicit with his disciples at least three times that we know of about what was going to happen when they made it to Jerusalem, about his crucifixion, and about his death. Chapter 16, verse 21, right after Peter, another one of the disciples, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and there's this moment of, oh, we recognize who you are. Matthew, the author of the Gospel, says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Chapter 17, 22 to 23, following the transfiguration, which is this unbelievable event where Jesus takes some of his disciples up on a mountain and he shows who he truly is, his glorious body, and he shines. And they hear the words of God the Father audibly right after that. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Chapter 20, 17 to 19. These are the three verses immediately following our passage this morning. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Parents, I think you'll identify with this. There was a little bit of in one ear, out the other 
kind of a situation going on here, right? Jesus has told them explicitly what is going to happen, and they simply don't hear it. They simply don't understand why he has come and what he is going to do. They don't understand the true nature of his ministry and mission, and they don't understand what it means for them as disciples to be a part of it. And so despite these three predictions that I just read, James and John, these brothers, are still thinking about privilege. They're thinking about privilege. They're thinking about themselves, how they can position themselves along with the other disciples, maybe to get ahead of the other disciples, how they can position themselves to get the best perks in God's and Jesus's coming kingdom. Verse 21, they request through their mother, which is sort of hilarious, to sit one at Jesus's right hand and one at his left. And so in effect, what is happening here is these sons of Zebedee off to the side when Jesus isn't with the 10 other disciples with the help of their mother. Picture this scene. These two disciples are basically going to Jesus and calling shotgun. Shotgun, we got it. Those two seats, we want them. We called it first. Ah! Right, they're calling shotgun here. But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He reminds them of the seriousness and the reality that's required to be a follower of Jesus, to be a follower of him. Verse 22, he asked them a question, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? See, in the scriptures, you might not be familiar with this image of the cup, but in the scriptures, this image of the cup is symbolic for someone's divinely determined destiny. It's used in a variety of different ways, but here it seems to be referring specifically to Jesus's upcoming suffering, again, that he has predicted three times up to this point. And so he is asking James and John, he's asking these two men, are you willing and are you able to go along and die with me? To suffer with me, to die with me. And these brothers, in a very ironic way, they cavalierly respond, we are able we are able. And it's funny, they're either incredibly confident in themselves or they're just completely naive about what they are agreeing to. And there's further irony here because if you know your scriptures at all, and it's okay if you don't, but just a few chapters from here, this is the same James and the same John that Jesus is going to take with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is going to remove himself from those disciples that he takes with him and fall down on the ground and he's going to desperately pray and desperately beg God the Father to let this same cup that they just agreed to drink, he's going to beg God to not have to drink that cup himself because he knows how terrible drinking this cup is about to be. And he turns around and goes back to this very same James and John who he asked to stay awake and pray with him and they are asleep. They can't drink the cup. They can't even stay awake. They can't even stay awake. And then people come to arrest Jesus, and they take off. They flee. In the next verse, verse 23, Jesus confirms that despite all of this, which he knows is going to happen, that they will suffer nonetheless. He says, you will drink my cup. And that does come true. We don't see that here explicitly in the scriptures in the New Testament, but tradition has it that James would become the first martyr, the first one killed for his faith in that, of, of the disciples, and that John, although he lived into an old age, he would live a life of persecution and exile. 
suffering for the name of Jesus. And so the brothers here, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they have a worldly conception of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It was not a pathway to collecting material and earthly benefits, but it's actually just the opposite. Again, several times in the book of Matthew, Jesus had made clear the seriousness and the reality of what it meant to follow him. He only promised his disciples that it was going to be hard. Most famously, in chapter 16, 24, immediately following that first prediction of his crucifixion, which we just read a moment ago, he says this, and many of you have heard this passage, I am sure. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus has made it clear to all of his disciples, to anyone who wants to follow him, that a relationship with him is not a friends with benefits situation. The 17th century minister, Matthew Henry, who is commenting on this passage, this is what he says, and I think this is a really nice way to put this. We know not what we ask when we ask for the glory of wearing the crown and not also ask for the grace to bear the cross on our way to it. Interestingly, there's another little piece of this passage that I wanted to point out. Many scholars believe, and this isn't totally provable, but it seems quite probable, that the mother here is actually also the sister of Mary, Jesus's mother. So if you're following the genealogy here, what that means, if this is true, is that James and John, these two brothers, were not just Jesus's disciples, but they were also his first cousins. And if this is true, and again, I don't know necessarily if it is or not, this request of theirs to call shotgun becomes even less palatable because what they are doing is they're trying to take advantage of these family ties. They're trying to take advantage of their kinship to Jesus using this unique status as his cousins to attain a privileged position over those who were not biologically connected to Jesus. It's kind of gross <laughs> what they're doing. James and John, they're seeing things through the lens of their culture, and again, potentially also through the lens of their family of origin, not through the lens of Jesus's kingdom and not through the lens of the family of God. And what Jesus is trying to do here is redirect them. He's trying to do some major reparenting of his disciples, of these two brothers, calling them to give up the belief structures that they have in which they were raised and to adopt instead the belief structures of the family of God, which is a much different set of values. But before we um, crush these two brothers, the sons of Zebedee and their mother, before we look down our long noses at them, let's be honest for a moment about the condition of our own hearts. I think for many of us, probably for all of us in this room, we all long in some form or fashion, for the goodies and the spoils of the world, don't we? And we all at times, I think, have fallen prey, even more so, to some sort of pseudo or practical prosperity gospel, thinking something along these lines. Since I am a good Christian, then my marriage should be satisfying. Or since I'm a good Christian, my kids should be obedient. Or my bank account should be healthy, or my body should be healthy. Or I should have lots of friends and fulfilling relationships. Because I'm a good Christian, I should make money on this real estate deal. 
I should be able to retire by 65. I should be able to find the perfect house in this market. I should have the job of my dreams. Because I'm a good Christian, my sports team should win. It's too soon, I know. We're all struggling. And if we're honest, many of us have fallen into a similar trap of James and John. And we've come to believe that Jesus and what he is offering us as his disciples is our best life now. And that being a Christian is somehow going to bring about the American dream that we're all sort of hoping for and hearing preached around us. But Jesus never promised that. Jesus never promises in the gospel that following him is going to lead to a life of comfort and convenience and safety and security. And the truth is that many of us have adopted this misconception of these brothers, and we have created some syncretistic version of Christianity rather than a biblical one. And I believe that like oil and water, Jesus and the American dream, they don't mix. They just don't mix together. And so we have a worldly misconception also, and we also need to be reparented. We also need to have our worldview, the lens through which we're looking, shifted and corrected by Jesus here. And so that's the brother's misconception, which I believe is ours also. And so let's hear second, Jesus's countercultural redefinition. Unsurprisingly, James and John's ambitious request, it doesn't sit very well with the other 10 disciples. Not a shocker. And so what Jesus does is he huddles them all together and he says, and he begins to teach them. Verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. And these rulers of the Gentiles here, if you're not familiar with the biblical story or with this time period in the, in the Middle East, the ancient Near East, these ancient, these rulers of the Gentiles that would spring to mind are the Romans, the Roman Empire which controlled the area and was characterized by displays of power and utilizing authority. So that's who they're envisioning here, the Romans. But as Jesus continues, he redefines what it means here to be great. Verses 26 and 27. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And so Jesus He references two of the lowest possible positions, both in the Roman and the Jewish culture and their societies, servants and slaves. And he flips the whole concept of greatness upside down. If you want to be on top of the social ladder, you actually need to act like someone who's on the very bottom of the social ladder. And as staggering and countercultural as that statement was, Jesus goes even further and he uses himself, he points to himself as an example. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see this in Jesus' teaching or in the New Testament all over the place. This is a classic how much more argument. If the Son of Man Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the true and rightful King, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. If this Son of Man was a humble servant, then how much more should those men and women who claim him as their master and the Lord that they follow, how much more should they also be humble servants? 
if the one who deserved above everyone else to be waited on hand and foot as the true king was willing to get down and wash the dirt off the feet of his disciples, why should those same disciples and all of the disciples after them, including us, why should we not expect a need to do likewise? Bernard of Clairvaux was a French monk in the Middle Ages. He put it this way, learn the lesson that if you are to do the work of a prophet, what you need is not a scepter, but a hoe. Not a scepter, but a piece of farm equipment, because you got to get to work. Not something to rule and lord other people with. James and John, their mother, and these other ten disciples, they all equated greatness with power, with authority, with position. But Jesus equates greatness with servanthood. Their definition was culture-based and self-focused, but Jesus' definition is kingdom-based and others-focused. Ambition like these brothers have in the pursuit of worldly greatness asks, what can you do for me and how can I lift myself up at the expense of others? But ambition in the way that Jesus is talking about, it asks the opposite question. What can I do for you and how can I lift up others at the expense of myself? The disciples believe that someone needed to ascend to be great, but Jesus teaches that you actually must descend to be great. And to bring it a little bit more modern, the promise of the American dream is upward mobility, but Jesus advocates here for the opposite. It's downward mobility. But once again, before we slam to the disciples, slam these 12 guys and say, yeah, of course, come on, guys. Haven't you read the Bible before? Let's invite God, the Holy Spirit, to examine the depths of our own hearts once again. What is your definition of greatness? If you were to type in, if I was to type in on your Google search engine of your brain, how to be great, what answer would it spit out? What is your ambition aimed at attaining? Is it good grades, being valedictorian, going to the right college? What about landing a job with a big salary and tons of vacation time? Or being promoted to junior partner and then senior partner and then managing partner, moving into the corner office? What about just some sort of achievement or accomplishment in your field, receiving awards or receiving the recognition of your peers, your coworkers in your field? Maybe for some of us, how to be great requires certain character traits like risk-taking or intelligence or leadership or courage or having a good work ethic or just being in general tenacious and just going after things. Maybe that's what it means to be great for you. But however you would define it, ask yourself this, is that conception of greatness worldly? Has it been shaped by our culture or by your family of origin or something else? Or is that definition, your conception of greatness countercultural? Has it been formed by the teachings of Jesus and been formed by the scriptures. That's Jesus' redefinition. It's radical. He flips it all upside down. But third, we don't want to leave without this. The Christian's chief motivation. The Christian's chief motivation. Scripture provides us, if you look throughout scriptures, with a number of reasons for us to engage 
in acts of service, to live a life of servanthood, to participate in gospel neighboring. Some of those motivations that you might find in the Bible are things like obedience or gladness, humility, love. And I could add others that aren't in the Bible, and some of these you'll hear touted in our culture in different ways, and many of them are are true. I don't have an issue with any of these, like better mental and physical health or personal gratification, life satisfaction, higher self-esteem, and there's interesting studies on those different things that show that all those are true when people serve and volunteer and give themselves for the sake of others. So all of those things may be true. All of those are possible motivations. But I believe that the scripture teaches that the chief motivation among these is gratitude. Gratitude. And specifically, this is a gratitude that stems from understanding the good news of Jesus, understanding the gospel, understanding that he came to reconcile us to God, to make us right with God. And that motivation is actually contained and found in the final words of our passage this morning, which we read twice already, but it's worth reading again, verse 28, that Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. In this word ransom here in Greek, it was commonly used to refer to the payment price in order to purchase the freedom for a slave. And what Jesus is saying here is that he came as our substitute that he paid the price of the penalty of our sin and rebellion, that he stood in our place, that he endured the judgment of God the Father for us, and that he drank not only the cup of suffering, which his disciples also would have to drink, but Jesus also drank the cup of the wrath of God. Psalm 75, verse 8, Asaph, the psalmist, talking about this cup, writes this, "'In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine.'" Mixed with spices, he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. And so the cup of Scripture, this cup of the wrath of God, this cup reserved for the enemies of God, it was drunk freely and graciously by the one human who didn't deserve to drink it. The one human who lived a perfect life of complete communion, complete obedience to the Father, he drank that cup for you and for me. And so the motivation to pursue Jesus's upside-down conception of greatness is the gospel. That service and servanthood is a reaction to the grace of God. It's something we do out of gratitude. It's an American pastor named A.W. Tozer, just from the last generation, a couple of generations ago. And he once wrote this, Fellowship with God leads straight to obedience and good works. That is the divine order, and it can never be reversed. Fellowship with God, to phrase it slightly differently, leads straight to service and servanthood. That is the divine order, and it can never be reversed. The followers of Jesus were a people who have experienced the great mercy and the great love of God, and so therefore we tangibly express the mercy and love of God in response to that as an act of worship. The Heidelberg uh, Catechism, which is one of the documents that our denomination subscribes to uh, that's promoting uh, for, for theology, for systematic theology. It's a beautiful, beautiful document. Question and answer 86 says this, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Again, read, why then should we serve? Why should we live a life of servanthood? Answer, because Christ 
having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits. So we do these things. We live a life of service. We live a life of servanthood. The motivation is that so that with our whole lives we can show our thankfulness, our gratitude to God, to Jesus for what he has done. So where do we go from here? How ought we to respond to this? This Sunday, Volunteer Sunday, I've been talking about this for a few weeks. How should we, what should we do with this passage? What should we take away? And as I close, I want to give you one warning and one exhortation. One warning and one exhortation. First, the warning. If you're waiting for the right season, for the right age and stage of your life to begin serving, to begin volunteering, to begin a life of servanthood, you're never going to do it. You're never going to get around to it if you're waiting for the perfect time. And one of the reasons for that is that volunteerism in our culture is actually on decline across the board. And this is true even pre-COVID. I can't imagine now in these last couple of years how much more this is true. The University of Maryland's Do Good Institute used U.S. Census data, this was back in, I believe, 2016, to track the rates of volunteering by Americans all the way from high school age to retirement age. And they discovered that in the 10 years of t- from 2005 to 2015, across every age group that they looked at, volunteering declined. And it probably won't surprise you that in this same study, it found that uh, adults ages 35 to 54, which they called parenting age adults, and some of us are parents before that, some have, still have parent, or kids in the home after that, but parenting age adults, it may not surprise you that, that that age group had one of the sharpest declines in volunteering, much more so than high school age or college age students. But what might surprise you, however, is that another study that came out around a similar time, it found that retirees those men and women who presumably have enough, enough time to serve, that have a flexible schedule, unlike people that are working, that they actually, retirees actually do not volunteer at higher rates than people who are employed. They saw almost no difference between those two. And this decline of volunteerism has been confirmed by other studies. And so the bottom line is that not only is it countercultural to seek to live a life of service and servanthood as a way to achieve greatness, to orient your ambition that way, not only is that countercultural, but actually to volunteer and to serve at all in any way is to swim against the current. One of these studies said that over 90% of the respondents said that they want to volunteer, but only about 25% actually do. There is no perfect time. And if you're waiting for that, you're just not ever going to do it. You're not going to get around to it. And so that leads to my exhortation, and this is where I'll wrap up. Start small and start now. Start small and start now. One of our local ministry partners, uh, which, d- who delivers food to hungry neighbors in the city of Philadelphia, is called Small Things. Hopefully you have heard about them if you have been here for any number of Sundays They've popped up in our service at different times, whether an announcements or offering moment, the worship folder, otherwise, or even via video. 
So hopefully you've heard about them. Hopefully you've heard about uh, their director, Vito uh, Baldini. But what you may not have ever heard is where Vito got the idea for the name Small Things. You may not have ever heard this. I heard this just a couple of weeks ago again from him, and it's striking. It's from a quote by Mother Teresa. And here's what she said. We cannot do great things, only small things with great love. We cannot do great things, only small things with great love. And what Vito admits, and I think what he loves about this quote, being able to call this nonprofit small things, is he knows, and he has said this, I've heard him say this, he knows that giving a single meal to a family in poverty or that giving groceries or snacks for the kids for a week or a month or whatever, he knows that those acts of mercy, that those ways to serve those families isn't going to help them all the way get out of poverty. It's not really going to change their situation. There's much more that needs to be done, and he partners with lots of other organizations in the city of Philadelphia to try to address other issues and systemic issues. But what he would also say is that it's still a great thing to give that meal, to give those groceries, to give those healthy snacks to kids. And it's worth doing because it's done with love and it's done in the name of Jesus. It's small, but it's still a great thing. And I think the same is true for us when it comes to serving, when it comes to volunteering in all kinds of ways. Donald Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he writes this. The ministry of serving may be as public as preaching or teaching, but more often it will be as sequestered as nursery duty. It may be as visible as singing a solo, but usually it will be as unnoticed as operating the sound equipment to amplify that solo. Serving may be as appreciative as a good testimony in a worship service, but typically it's as thankless as washing the dishes after a church social. Small things small things. The, the best way to become a Christ-like servant, to pursue this life of servanthood, is to build up and strengthen your volunteer muscles in small ways, and to do that now. By serving in some easier ways and doing so regularly, not by waiting for the perfect opportunity to come along at some future idealistic age and stage of your life. Besides, I would argue that if you're waiting to serve only in large and impressive and ways that are, ways that are in a spotlight, that's probably self-righteous anyway, right? Serve in small ways that are hidden first. Build up those volunteer muscles. Create some serving inertia inside of you to serve, to live a life of servanthood. To be clear, I think you should look for opportunities to serve that fit your affinities and fit your abilities, meaning that finding ways to serve that interests you, that stirs passion within you, finding ways to volunteer that you're good at and that you seem to have a gifting or, uh, or, or training in those ways to serve in a particular way. But I would say also, while you are searching for that, just do something in the meantime. Again, if you're just waiting for forever for this perfect marriage to come together of your abilities and affinities and all these things, you're just not ever going to get around to it. So just do something do something small. Start small. Start now. That's my exhortation this morning. And so Liberty Church Collins, what I ask you, do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? If you do, then live a life of servanthood like Jesus advocates for here. And I encourage you to volunteer here 
within the walls of this building, but also outside the walls of this building, in your neighborhood, in your community, and in our world. And do all of it, not out of obligation, not out of guilt, not out of these other motivations, but do all of it out of gratitude for the grace you have received. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. <laughs>